Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. I'm Luke. This is my podcast. It's for learners of English. Welcome. This episode is called Film Club, Monty Python and the Holy Grail Revisited with Anthony Rotuno, LEP slash Film Gold Swapcast. And I think the best way to give an introduction to this is just to explain the title. It's quite a long and convoluted title. I'll just explain the title and that will be the introduction to this episode. So let me do that right now. I will try to keep this short and I will probably fail. So, Film Club. As you may know, from time to time, I do these Film Club episodes in which I talk about films that I love. The idea is that I want to introduce you to films in English which I think are great and which you might enjoy too. And watching films can help with your learning of English, as I've discussed before. You can watch these films in English with or without the English subtitles. I recommend doing a bit of both, sometimes with subtitles, so that you can actually see what you're hearing, and sometimes without, where you can focus exclusively on your listening skills and not just your reading skills. The idea is that you can listen to this episode and get to know the film through our comments and descriptions, then watch the film and hopefully understand and appreciate it a bit better, or just listen to this without watching the film at all, if you prefer. There are a few audio clips from the film included here, for educational purposes, of course, so you will be able to hear some moments and scenes from the film. Some of you will know the film already, and if that is the case, congratulations, you get bonus points. If you know the film already, hopefully we will still be able to tell you something new about it, because there is a lot to say. I hope you can access the film somehow. There's always the DVD or Blu-ray version, if you still have a player. And at the time of recording this, I can see that Monty Python and the Holy Grail is available on Netflix, with subtitles in various languages and everything. I've also found the entire film on YouTube, and it's been there for three years, so you might be able to watch it there. I'll include a link to that on the page for this episode on my website, where you can also read this whole introduction transcript if you want. So, yes, I'll put the YouTube uh, version of the full movie on the website. Who knows, it might still be there by the time you choose to, to look at it there, if you choose to do that. So that's the film club side explained. Let me explain the rest of the title of this episode. So film club, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So the film we're talking about here is a British comedy film from 1975 by Monty Python's Flying Circus. Just in case you don't know, Monty Python's Flying Circus is a group of comedians 
who did a TV series, some films, some stage shows and some audio albums, mostly in the 1960s and 1970s. They are still going today, pretty much. And uh, they did a few... They did a few uh, stage shows a few years ago. They kind of came back and did a few stage shows. The members are slash were John Cleese, Graham Chapman, Michael Palin, Terry Jones, Terry Gilliam and Eric Idle. Sadly, Graham Chapman and Terry Jones are no longer with us. They are slash were all British, except for Terry Gilliam who is originally from the United States of America. This film is a ridiculous but very clever comedy adventure story about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And this fits in quite nicely with the recent episode with my dad about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, as I will say in a moment. King Arthur is a mythical king from British history. We think he's mythical, but there might have been a real King Arthur once upon a time who the myths are based on, but we're not sure. But certainly there are various stories about Arthur in British culture, including legends about him searching for the Holy Grail. That's the cup which Jesus drank from during the Last Supper, his last dinner before he was crucified. So legends about King Arthur exist about him searching for the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus drank from during the Last Supper, which may or may not have found its way to the British Isles at some point. And also, there are stories of how Arthur first became king by either pulling a magic sword, called Excalibur, out of a rock, or by being given the sword by the Lady of the Lake, a magical enchantress or fairy, a supernatural woman, who, in these stories, emerged from a lake to give the sword to Arthur, signifying that he had a God-given right and duty to be the king and to unite the whole country. Okay, so those are the main stories that about King Arthur. One is that he tried to find the Holy Grail. Another one is that he became king by pulling a magic sword out of a rock. And the other, another one is that he became king by being given this magic sword by a sort of um, magical woman who lived in a lake. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, So, yes, it's sort of an origin story of the royal family, kind of, but also just a romantic tale which has been told again and again and again, particularly in England for many centuries. With this film, the Monty Python team decided to make a comedy version of the story of King Arthur and his quest to find the Holy Grail, set in medieval times. So it's a comedy version of King Arthur's story. The connection to the episode about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight with my dad is that this is also a folklore story from the Arthurian legends, the set of stories associated with King Arthur and his knights, and that's knights with a K. Monty Python and the Holy Grail, although a comedy, does also contain many of the same themes that are present in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. There is honour, there is a quest into the unknown, there are games and challenges from various characters and beasts along the way, there is a temptation scene, there's an enchantress, there are duels with mysterious and deadly enemies, but of course the film is a parody of all those ideas, a joke version 
making fun of all those tropes of medieval romantic adventures. The film is an affectionate parody of that whole story archetype. It also makes fun of plenty of other things, as we will discuss. So, Film Club, Monty Python and the Holy Grail revisited. So, I am revisiting this film on the podcast with this episode, and by revisiting, I mean visiting it again. I'm talking about it again. I say that because I did an episode about this film on the podcast in 2014. Long-term listeners should remember that. It's in the archive if you want to check it out, episode 202. In that one, I focused on just one scene from the film in a lot of detail, breaking down all the language bit by bit to help you understand it all. If you haven't heard that, let me recommend it. There you go. I recommend it. Thanks for letting me recommend it. It should be a good addition to this episode and you will hear me fully dissecting all the language and comedy in what is probably my favourite scene in the film. We also talk about that scene a little bit in this episode. It's the constitutional peasants scene where Arthur talks to a couple of peasants who are collecting mud in a field and they talk about the whole system, uh, the governing system that rules the country and whether it really is a a monarchy ruling by divine authority, or whether it is in fact some kind of anarcho-syndicalist commune based on, somehow based on Marxist values, which hadn't actually been established until many, many, many centuries later. Um, So this time though, in this episode, we are dealing with the whole film, discussing it and giving an overview of the entire thing, how it was made, what it all means, if it means anything, and what happens in the story scene by scene. So, Film Club, Monty Python and the Holy Grail revisited with Anthony Rotuno. The other person you will hear in this episode is Anthony Rotuno. You've heard Anthony a few times on this podcast now, most recently in the episode about meditation from earlier this year. Anthony is an English teacher, a podcaster, and a musician from England. And then the final part of the title of this episode is LEP slash Film Gold Swapcast. A swapcast is when two podcasts publish the same audio recording. So this recording was first published by Anthony on his film podcast earlier this year. His film podcast is called Film Gold. He edited this episode and published it in February. And Anthony said I could publish it on my podcast too, so here you go. No doubt this episode will be epically long, which I think is totally fine, I must say. I've said it before, and I will say it again. You don't have to listen to this in one go. If you're using a podcast app on your phone, you can pause at any time, go and live your life for a while, and then when you come back to the episode, your podcast app will remember where you stopped, and then you can just carry on. So here's a nice long episode for you to enjoy in your own time. Uh, One note, if you're listening to this on YouTube, because, you know, I do upload my episodes to YouTube as well. If you're listening to this on YouTube and you want to activate the automatic subtitles, I have a suspicion, I expect, that they won't be available. Now, I always activate the automatic subtitles on my YouTube videos, every time. But sometimes YouTube just says no. 
I suspect that might be the case this time, which is a pity. So you might just have to survive without subtitles this time and focus on your listening skills rather than your reading skills. If it's any consolation, my other episode about this film from 2014, that's episode 202, that one does have plenty of notes and scripts, which you will find on my website. So in a moment... Luke's English podcast is going to transform into Film Gold, hosted by Anthony, with me as his guest. I must say thank you to Anthony for doing all the editing and production work on this one and allowing me to publish this here for my audience to enjoy. So thank you, Anthony. I would like to just take this moment to recommend Anthony's other podcasts to you again. He's got three. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. There's Film Gold, which is discussions of classic films. There's Life and Life Only, which is all about self-development, life coaching, discussions about society and the search for inner and outer truth. And by the way, I was recently a guest on Life and Life Only, talking about a documentary film called The Corporation. Uh, so there's Film Gold, Life and Life Only, and thirdly, there's Glass Onion on John Lennon, which is a deep dive into the life and times of John Lennon from the Beatles. So those are Anthony's uh, podcasts. Right then, in a moment, you're going to hear the pleasant sounds of Anthony's Film Gold intro music, and then lots of sound effects fanfares and crazy madness for a minute or two. And if you wonder what that is, it's the audio from the original trailer for Monty Python and the Holy Grail. As you will hear, one of the jokes in the trailer is that the person doing the voiceover keeps being fired and replaced. We start with a cheesy American announcer, then we get a couple of English guys who can't really read very well, and finally, the voiceover is done by a person speaking what I think is Chinese, although I'm not, in, I'm not sure exactly what variety of Chinese it is. Please feel free to confirm or deny that, that it is indeed Chinese. I'm pretty sure it is, or explain what kind of Chinese it is, or indeed any of the things he's saying. But so the voiceover guy uh, gets fired twice and then eventually is replaced by a, a Chinese speaker who I think is a... I've, I've recognised his voice, actually. He's a, a British actor, a British-Chinese actor, who often um, turns up in comedies and things like that. The trailer is typically crazy, and there are lots of little clips from the film and sound effects. If you're wondering what's going on, basically you're being transported into the madcap world of Monty Python. And then you will hear Anthony's voice and you'll know that you're in the comfortable surroundings of the Film Gold podcast. Right, so without any further ado, let's stop my introduction so you can hear another introduction to this introduction to the introduction to the film of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. in a lifetime, there comes a motion picture which changes the whole history of motion pictures. A picture so stunning in its effect, so vast in its impact, that it profoundly affects the lives of all who see it. 
One such film is... Very good. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Next, please. Once in a lifetime, there comes a motion picture which changes the whole history of motion pictures. Uh, yes, thank you. Next. Once in a lifetime! Go away. What? Next. What's wrong with my voice? My voice is all right, my brain is wrong. That's more like it. Kurosawa's Seven Samurai is such a Ivan the Terrible. Herbie Rides Again, La Notte, and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Monty Python and the Holy Grail If you do not open this door, we shall take this castle by force. When One day, lad. All oh, this will be yours. What, the curtains? Run away! Run away! What makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt! But with the seven seals, So Monty Python and the Holy Grail 看完了,来这里吃便饭 Hello everybody, welcome to Film Gold episode 15. We're here in the Middle Ages, or in the 10th century. Yeah, anyway, let's leave that. That's the Middle Ages, isn't it? I think so. It's a, certainly a surreal time at the moment, for all kinds of reasons. Hmm. Today, I'm very happy, delighted in fact, to have... This is going so badly. Let's do it like Monty Python. <laughs> we apologise for the introduction. The person who did that introduction has been sacked. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Film Gold, everybody. Episode 15. This is Monty Python and the Holy Grail from 1975. And I'm delighted to have with me Luke Thompson from Luke's English Podcast. How are you doing, my friend? I'm very well, thanks, Anthony. Yep. Thanks for inviting me on to Film Gold, which is um, you know, a great idea for a podcast, talking about classic movies, classic, classic films. So you actually sent me a big list of films uh, well, how do you describe that list? Is this just like your list of favourite films or is this your list of films you'd like to talk about in your podcast? So you're just giving away all the trade secrets right at the beginning. Oh, am I? That's all my secrets. <laughs> no, it's uh, flickchart.com. Basically, you enter a film and then it pits it against seven or eight films and you choose which one you like best and then it sorts them into an order. 
Oh, I see. So it, it's a, like a way of working out your massive list of favourite films. That's it. But like, if you if you did the whole 15, I've got 1,500 nearly on there. It would take your whole life to get the whole of them in the right order. But I'm happy with my top 100 more or less in the right order. So yeah, I sent you them. Because on this podcast, I just want to talk about films that me and the guests both love rather than picking apart shit films, basically. So Yeah. Yeah, you sent me that list and you sort of said, have a look through the list and see what appeals to you. Yeah. And a lot of films appealed to me, but I, I kind of thought to myself, oh, what could I bring to the conversation about that? Or what about that? Oh, I don't know. I love the film, but I don't know if I could be really clear about it. And then Holy Grail turned up and I was like, right, I've got, I've got to have that. I've just got to because, yeah, it's one of my favorite films as well. Yeah. And there's just so many things, so many things to enjoy and to talk about. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, it's the, th- it's the third comedy we've done on Film Gold, but the first two technically were rom-coms, Groundhog Day and The Graduate. But when I think, of, I don't think of either of them really as rom-coms. They're kind of loosely comedies, really, because The Graduate, I don't know if you remember that film well, but it goes, kind of changes, and he goes, like, very stalkery in the second half. Yeah. And then Gra- Groundhog Day is obviously a comedy, but it's got so much depth to it which you don't really associate with comedies obviously the best ones you do but but this is um fantasy adventure absurd silly surreal (laughs) what else can you say epic i don't yeah i mean like having prepared to talk about this with you i've been thinking about it and thinking about how to describe it how to how to maybe explain it this is the thing or maybe at some intellectual level how to talk about it and it's actually really hard to pick it apart Mm. i mean that's the thing about comedy if this was a serious film it might be easier to analyze it and to describe it and uh, you know associate it with different intellectual schools of thought and things like that Mm. but since it's a comedy and since it's a monty python comedy there's so many layers and so many different things going on as we're probably going to discuss there are lots of contrasts and things in it and i was thinking okay i'll just kind of list all the different contrasts but even within the contrasts there are contrasts yeah you know so yeah it's it's very complicated but um on my podcast i like to talk about films and actually i did do an episode about this one my podcast is about uh, is, is for learners of english and Sometimes I'll dissect comedy scenes from films. And I did the constitutional peasants scene from this film. Yeah. And um, <laughs> what's my point? It's <laughs> Monty Python. You don't need a point. Yeah, I don't make know. Make one up. Come on, make one up. Well, the point was that um, I call it dissecting the frog. And the idea is mm. that, you know, I don't know if you've ever come across that quote that uh, explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog because... You can learn something from it, but the frog dies in the process. So there might be a bit of that going on here where we, in describing this film, destroy all the humour from it. I don't know, but uh, I guess we'll see. I think when we go through this film, I think uh, just how much we like it will hopefully come through. Because I was, I liked it anyway, but I've always pitched Life of Brian ahead of it. But now, to be honest, I'm not sure because last night I've got the DVD and I watched it with the subtitles of the film going. And then I listened to two Python commentaries. One was the two Terrys, you know, the two directors. And then mm. obviously Graham Chapman's not there, but the other three, Cleese, Payne and Lydell. And I think they hadn't seen it for ages. And you could hear them laughing, not laughing at how clever they are, but genuinely laughing as an outsider, laughing at <laughs> just all the stupid swallow discussions and the constitutional peasants, as you said. I think yeah. maybe one way of summing up the appeal of it is a lot of juxtaposition. And one of them is clearly very intelligent people, which all six of them were, being silly, 
But it's not mm-hmm. the same as not very intelligent people being silly. There's an edge to it. And obviously yeah. there's, a, there's a use of, as we as English teachers, we would appreciate that the use of language is just phenomenal at times. Yes, you know? absolutely. And the, the contrast of different modes of speech. Yes. So you've got like Arthur's very posh and old fashioned way of speaking. He's very sort of lofty. And then he's always, he's always having to deal with these idiots who speak in modern English. Yes. And they're sort of like working class or maybe lower middle class mm. English people who just go on about really annoying details yeah. and really bring everything down to earth in the most mundane and boring way. And it really cuts through the sort of majesty of Arthur's speaking in a very funny way. So yeah, the contrast of the different speaking styles and registers of English. Yeah, it's this juxtaposition. It's always in the unexpected. And I was going to do this at the end, but I may as well just mention, um, when I'm trying to make sense of films, one guy I often turn to is Rob Ager, who you actually had on your show, didn't you? And I, mm-hmm. I met him as a fan about 10 years ago in Liverpool. We've kind of become friends. We don't see each other too much, but I was in Liverpool for a few months in 2019. And we'd go to the pub, have a couple of beers and just get on these epic talks, you know, just, just like going. We couldn't speak fast enough because we had so many yeah. ideas we wanted to say. And, and when we just did The Graduate, the last episode, he did a brilliant video on just the first five minutes of The Graduate. And he did a couple of classics on Holy Grail. I just want to say, you know, thanks to him. And I always give him a shout out and I always put it in the show notes. His argument in a nutshell is that the whole film is basically showing how fake film and television is Mm -hmm. by being fake themselves almost. You know, I don't know if there's a word for that, but... Well, they're sort of subverting every single convention of film and TV constantly. I was trying to work out whether there's more to it than that, whether they're also subverting history itself. I don't know. If we're talking about the philosophy and trying to explain the comedy of Monty Python, I was thinking about this and I thought that I don't think they started with a philosophical or intellectual point of view and then applied it to their comedy. I think they just, they focused on being funny. I think that was their main objective, right? Mm. It was just to be funny. But of course, they brought so many things to it and they were the product of their context and the five of them worked together the six of them six six yeah six of Mm. course worked together so closely in the way that they checked each other's ideas and things they wouldn't let ideas through unless they all agreed they were good and that meant that the standard was quite high but also it meant that they were all involved in the process of writing to an extent, you know, I know they were in teams and stuff, but they all brought things to it and they were all a product of their time and their education and stuff. And so that probably fed in a certain philosophy or, or intellectual outlook to it. It's difficult to explain or categorize it, mm. but people usually say things like it's surreal humor. Satirical, um, definitely. Satirical. Yeah, sat- yeah. satirical. Going back to Rob Ager though, Rob's amazing, and I'm always impressed by the clarity of his analysis and and the the way he sees films and the way he's able to notice these things and tie them together. So Rob Ager talked about how Holy Grail is very, very subversive. I think he described it as like the most subversive film ever. Yeah. Subverting film itself and commenting on the medium itself. I wonder if it also is somehow commenting on history or commenting on social systems things like that it sort of contrasts this absolute monarchy or the divine right of kings with more modern day socialist or anarchistic anarchic 
systems, you mm. know, Marxism or anarchy, you know, so many different contrasts. I think there is intentional depth, but I think some of it just comes out. And I, again, as you were saying, I think you were saying before we started, let's not kill it too much with overanalysis, but it's definitely social commentary. You're going to find me possibly sneaking in John Lennon and Beatles references today. And it's not just for the sake of my other audience. And I know you're a huge Beatles fan, so you won't mind. Yes. But it's no, very with interesting with the Pythons and the Beatles because you've both got these incredibly interesting dynamics between a group of people. You've got tensions, as we've seen in Get Back, of course, Beatles fans. Mm-hmm. We've seen a bit more clarity in terms of those relationships, but they're just endlessly, you know, especially John, Paul and George. And here you've got... We're actually going to break off about halfway through the film because halfway through the commentary, one of the Pythons starts talking about the division that you're talking about. It's a kind of three against three split in a general way. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get to that. So it's directed by Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam. One of them described it as tag team directing, which is quite funny. The film's got the Gilliam touch. I think, by the way, they said that the film can only be directed by anyone called Terry. That's how they uh, decided who could direct it. That's how they <laughs> decided that they would be in charge. I know it's directed by the two. I'd love to find out which scenes specifically are done by Gilliam and which ones were done by Terry Jones. Because mm-hmm. I feel like I could guess which ones are the Gilliam ones. Because some parts of the film do have that Gilliam touch. It's hard to put your finger on it. I don't know how he does it. What special magic dust did it, he, he sprinkles all over the camera? But certain things that anything Gilliam handles seems to just have this wonderful and beautiful and sort of a different sense of space to it than Terry Jones's stuff or anyone else. So, for example, there are scenes when um, Arthur and Patsy uh, are approaching the Black Knight. Patsy. Patsy. (laughs) This is my good servant, Patsy. Yeah, I'm just going to find myself (laughs) chuckling through the rest of this conversation. But anyway, sorry, go on. (laughs) When they're they're approaching the Black Knight and they're riding through a forest and there are just some scenes of the forest where the light shining through the trees and it's just like really beautiful. I mean, there are some really beautiful moments in the film Mm. and really great bits of scenery and the soundtrack as well is amazing. And so in one way, Mm. I really love this film as a genuine adventure story, medieval epic. Obviously, it must be terribly difficult for them to suddenly be kind of the boss, plus their actors as well. So they're, they're working on two levels. And I, I can imagine, like, I don't know if you've ever read or listened to Michael Palin's diaries. Michael Palin seems like a pretty agreeable guy, but without wanting to, to get too catty, I think people like Cleese and Idol, I think they're a bit mercenary for a start. They like a bit of the old... Uh, yeah, yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. But they're very... They come across as quite spiky characters, which we could probably imagine is true. Especially Cleese, I would say. Yeah, maybe. Uh, it's an edge. I, I don't know about Eric Idle, really. He's kind of an interesting case. He yeah. seems to sort of like happy-go-lucky. And he described himself as the wicket keeper of the Python group, which I've always liked. You know, in the sense that like someone like Cleese would have been a fast bowler. Mm. There's batsmen and bowlers in mm. cricket. Then there's this extra person, the wicketkeeper, who provides this other important role, but they're on their own. A bit like a goalkeeper in a football team. Yes. I think he worked on his own quite a lot, didn't he? In, that in was the thing he did. They had, they had little teams. Obviously, Gilliam's kind of a, on his own anyway, doing the animations. Terry Jones and Palin were a team. Chapman and Cleese were a team. And then Eric wrote on his own. Yeah. I don't think that was always the case. I think they may have written sketches together. I think they had suggested on the commentary someone should write an academic paper or somebody already had on um, dynamics, you know. Yeah. 
Well, there, the, the Beatle connection as well. Uh, didn't George say that uh, when the Beatles split up, that the spirit of the Beatles left the Beatles and went into Python? Absolutely. Um, which is great. You know, again, going back to the thing about them being a product of their time, they did arrive in that sort of post-war baby boom generation. Yeah. And so they kind of had a lot of those values. And there was this sense that life could be about more than that. And, you know, all those changes that we associate with the hippie movement and so on, Yeah, they kind of were part of that as well to an extent. So they brought in that kind of irreverence and that sense of fun and that sense of smashing down institutions. You know, mm. we could, again, we could connect it to those more intellectual artistic movements, you know, mm. like surrealism and Dadaism. Yes. You know, which were all about basically when the world is at war, you know, like World War One, when thousands and thousands of people are just being killed uh, on the battlefields on a daily basis. Society is just absurd, isn't it, if this is possible. And so, you yeah. know, let's express that through art. Yeah, I mean, it's such a fascinating time. I mean, you're right. I've just read a book, actually, uh, called The Beatles and the Avant-Garde, and it talks about, you know, obviously the much maligned Yoko Ono and... Uh, some of her art and John Cage and all those people, it all kind of just melds into one in some funny way. And the Pythons are in there and Neil Innes is in there and the Bonzos are in there. I'll get to that in two seconds, by the way. I just want to say about Graham yeah. Chapman, just a fantastic leading actor and was actually an alcoholic. You probably know this. He was an alcoholic yeah. at the time. There was And there was the bit we'll get to on the bridge, the bridge of death where, I mean, he was shaking and they, and they, were, they were wondering whether he was going to be able to, get through the film but he just plays it so brilliantly this shakespearean i think earnest is the word is like i'm Arthur, yeah. king of the britons like he just believes intently on everything he says <laughs> and that's why this juxtaposition with these peasants talking about african swallows is is so brilliant i mean this is yeah i don't want to go on too much but i think it's a work of genius and the yeah. other thing is, that, of course, it was partly financed by Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin, which plays into the Pythons as rock stars thing even yes. more. We sort of identified this comedy through line that I would say probably starts with the goons, goes through Richard Lester, and he made a short film called The Running, Jumping, Standing Still film with Peter Sellers, who was a goon. Mm -hmm. Then you've got, obviously, the Beatles in there. You've got How I Won the War with John Lennon, then you got the Bonzos, then Python, and then the Ruttles, and then the Young Ones, and then Blackadder. I think that's enough. Yeah. Do you want to comment on that <laughs> before I go on anymore? Well, yeah, it's sort of like popular culture, isn't it? Which seemed mm. to be what we ended up being really good at in, in the sort of second half of the last century. By the way, did, uh, I read that in 1975, Monty Python and the Holy Grail was the biggest grossing British film in America of the year, which is quite good, good considering none of the studio, no one wanted to finance it except these rock stars who probably needed a, a way to invest their money to avoid paying too much tax. That was the thing. That was one of their motives. Yeah. Thank goodness for that high rate of tax that we got yeah. these good films and a couple of good songs out of it and an album. Yeah. Talking about um, getting gold out of uh, difficult circumstances, both the location in Scotland it was very cold and very wet. The mud in the film was apparently all real, except when Michael Palin's eating it, it was apparently was chocolate. But the circumstances and also the low budget as well, they made it work to their advantage because then they used Gilliam's animation just to advance the plots. So they wouldn't have to film certain things. And it's just brilliant. And like I say, I mean, when I was watching this, one of the great things about doing a podcast about films is that 
in preparation, you often sort of live intimately with a film for a day or two, you know, and you do commentaries mm. and all extras and documentaries and certain films, you, you just appreciate them so much more. And, and this one, I just, like I said earlier, I can't believe how many subtle details there are. And it's only yeah. when people point them out that they really, um, you really notice them. But let me ask you a question. How familiar are you with the Python TV series and how do you think it compares with the films? Yeah, so I've watched a lot of the TV stuff, maybe even all of it. And um, how does it compare? Well, it's some of it's done on tape rather than on film. And it's got that very much that sort of TV production quality to it. Mm. But the film, although it's parodying those epic films, is an epic film too. And it feels like that. It's got a certain epic sweep to it, which makes it different to me. So I, I feel like the film is better than the TV show. I prefer it for that reason. I'm going to upset some Python fans. I've watched the first series a lot, and I've seen now for something completely different, which is very similar, isn't it? I'd kind of go with John Cleese, where he thought they were repeating themselves by about the end of the second series. And I think he did the third series and then didn't do the fourth. I think that's right. So I think it's one of those cases that, I don't know if you've ever seen the film How I Won the War, which is the one that John Lennon's in, but he just sort of pops up every now and again. Yeah. When we reviewed that, we reviewed that on... um podcast I should plug with my friend Scott called Real Britannia about British films we said the ideas were probably a bit better than the execution and I feel like that a bit with the series there's some brilliant ideas this subversion idea but I think with the films they kind of to me it's much more than a collection of sketches but if it was a collection of sketches they've really got the best ones and managed to yeah. weave it into a story you know for me, the um, the best of the TV series is actually not the TV series, if that makes sense. A lot of those sketches, a lot of the things they did are really good, really good bits of writing, like the argument sketch, mm. which is just an amazing bit of writing. Every single line is, is perfect. But the TV series didn't capture it in its best form. And now for something completely different, didn't either. In fact, it's worse than the TV series. It doesn't right. feel right on film. Mm. And there's like camera movements, slightly cinematic camera movements and stuff that don't fit with those sketches. But the, the sketches are best in the stage shows. My favourite one is, is Live at Drury Lane, Ah. I don't know if you've ever heard that. No, what year? What year is that? Or roughly seventies? Is it, is it the pipe? Oh, they're in their pomp. It's not thirty years later. No, it was a vinyl audio release, ah. but you can get it on CD, and I think it's on streaming platforms. I think you can probably get it on YouTube. I really recommend Live at Drury Lane. It's just brilliant, and it contains some of their best sketches. But it's just the audio. But because they're doing it on stage and because they've obviously been practicing it, the timing is like far better and you've got the audience laughing and mm. it's really good. And also Live at Hollywood Bowl, I think, is a good one. Yeah, yeah, well. I've seen that one, yeah. I'll put them all in the show notes if I can find them. I saw on video the one they did recently. And I mean, you know, it's not being ageist, but they're doing the sketches. They're not obviously in the same condition. And then the audience are just shouting out the line so that you may as well just let the they should just mime and let the audience fill it in yeah. it's got a bit silly after a while yeah the original the original tv series it must have been amazing when you saw it if you were one of the people who saw it on tv at the time if you just caught mm. it like what the hell is this this is amazing it was completely unlike anything that had been on tv at the time and it's you know got so much attention but yeah the film work and then i think the some of the stage shows in the 70s are their best work yeah perhaps i was a little bit Obviously, a lot. sometimes it's the order you see things. I loved Faulty Towers from when I was about 12. Mm -hmm. I remember being off sick from school 
and I, wa- I had one of the VHS tapes. And I, I, just, I think I watched it through like a whole series twice. And that was when I was really young, really, 12, 13. So I preferred that. And when I, when I discovered him in Python, I thought, oh, he's not so good in this. You know, I'm not saying that's correct, by the way. You know, it's entirely mm-hmm, subjective, mm-hmm. of course. So maybe my, my opinion was a bit skewed. And then I saw Life of Brian first. And like I said, I've always preferred Life of Brian, but now I'm not so sure. Maybe we could do Life of Brian in the future. Mm-hmm. And I'll live with that for a couple of days. And then I'll be able to make a really good judgment <laughs> which one's better. Obviously, Life of Brian is a great piece of work. And there's also the sort of, you know, the satire is a, to the forefront a bit more. Mm. But I still prefer this. I'm not sure why. Again, I think I just, just enjoy it as a film a bit more. The, the scenery. I love those shots of the Scottish countryside and castles and knights on horseback. I do like all that stuff. Yeah. And yeah, and the jokes are potentially even more ridiculous. And I just enjoy the whole medieval world. I think it's yeah. fascinating and just interesting to explore. Well, I think also the secret weapon of the film is this connection to the present. Because uh, I remembered, obviously, the ending of the film. And uh, I'm going to assume people have seen it. So the police. I remember that. And I remember the historian. But through uh, Rob again, really helpful with yeah. this. It's kind of all the way through the film. There's this weird thing where Rob posited the idea that maybe the film is just a bunch of uh, academics playing at being knights and that in fact is all set in the present <laughs> that's the thing there's no there's no rules i mean it could be anything or it could be nothing you know it's yeah i had a theory matters. that it that they were a group of patients who'd who'd escaped from a sort of a mental health institute uh, and they've just they're just on a rampage but um yeah in rob Eger's video he does point out that in the original series they did have a sketch that this this film was sort of based on which was um, yes. a medieval knight in the modern world, and he's riding down some high street town, you know, the high street of a town in England, and sort of wondering where he is and stuff. Yeah. And the film originally, uh, apparently, originally it was supposed to be a mix of present day and medieval scenes. I don't know yeah. how they would have worked that out, but yeah. that could have been interesting. Like this, this, so they were going to play with the contrast of the modern and the medieval a lot more. Rob's theory is that because, in fact the film is set in the present day. The film is a comment on the present day, which stands up, you know, Absolutely. about the ridiculousness of absolute monarchy and the divine right of kings and stuff, as, as we mentioned before. This modern day thing, it, it's an extra element to the film that sort of yeah. elevates it above what it could have been, I think, you know? Yeah. Well, do you think it elevates it? Because I actually, I was thinking about this and I always felt like it was a little bit of a downer, the ending. And I was wondering... Mm. What would the film be like if he succeeded at the end and he got the grail and sort of like, ha oh, you know, the angels sang yeah. and all that stuff. Would that be too cheesy or something? I don't well, know. Well, I think it's, a, it's, again, a through line of British comedy. And you and I have talked about Alan Partridge a lot and it probably doesn't mean anything to my vast North American audience <laughs> or all uh, however many there are of them. But um, I don't know if it's like a subconscious thing that British audiences we're not comfortable with them winning. I mean, I actually do like mm. it when, I love it when Alan Partridge gets revenge on someone, for example. But yeah. I, don't, I don't know, maybe, like I say, the melancholy, it's just another element. I, I used to feel like with Woody Allen films, I know Woody Allen is a lot, very tainted in people's eyes, but I tend to separate the work and the person and just mm-hmm. just look at the work. And I used to find that with films like Play It Against Sam and Bananas and all those. 
I used to feel a bit sad at the end, but then I kind of thought, well, that may be intentional or like I said, that may be an extra layer. But I just thought of the modern day stuff when I realised that it's actually sprinkled liberally through the film. Yeah. Like yeah. They, they'll just cut to the police or the, the historian's wife or something. I think, I think it's fantastic. <laughs> Again, just another use of contrast, which creates comedy, the contrast between the very believable medieval setting. And then suddenly there's like a, a policeman, you know, with a trench coat on exploring a crime scene. I think they get the balance just about right. It's the same with breaking the fourth wall. It's a very risky thing to do. I mean, going back to Woody Allen, he did it in uh, Annie Hall, which is a comedy, but has some, I don't know, it's, it's a s- serious film in the sense that it's not absurdist like this. Mm. But then, I mean, he breaks the fourth wall at the beginning, which is fair enough. But then halfway through a scene, like halfway through the film, he suddenly breaks it again. And I'm thinking, like, you could easily lose the audience. You've got to get that right. But I suppose in the editing suite, they would have played that for people, wouldn't they? And sorted that out. I suppose Gaged it. Yeah, that moment in Annie Hall does really work. And it's one of the things Mm. that makes the film great. He's having an argument in a cinema queue. Oh, that's it, yeah. Right? And, you know, there's a snob in front of him talking about Marshall McLuhan. He's trying to impress the the date that he's on yeah. with, with on. And then Woody Allen's like, that's definitely not what Marshall McLuhan said. And he's like, okay. And he actually goes off screen and grabs Marshall McLuhan and brings him into the scene. Yeah, brilliant. And then he sort of addresses the audience and says, look, this is Marshall McLuhan. He's going to tell us. And yeah, I don't know how that works, but it does. The thing is about comedy that there are no rules, which is the way that comedy works, is which is mm. kind of what makes Python such great comedy is that they really took that to the extreme and really decided, okay, we'll just do whatever it takes to get the, the best laugh. And that means trampling on absolutely every convention. Mm. When they're editing the film, they probably get a few opinions and say, oh, have we got the balance right? Or is that breaking the fourth wall? Does that mess up that scene or whatever? Yes. That would be it. Yeah. Anyway, we should probably get to the film. We have to start with the credits. And uh, this was Michael Palin, who actually wrote them all, apparently, by himself. I'm not surprised. You can tell, I think, (laughs) that it's Palin. These cod Scandinavian subtitles. I mean, I won't even bother describing them. People are going to watch the (laughs) film and they've probably seen it already. Obviously, the film is being shown to a Swedish audience as well. So there are Swedish, I guess, Swedish subtitles. And suddenly the Swedish person writing the subtitles starts to try and sell holidays to Sweden, tries to persuade people. No, it's Norway, isn't it? Why not visit Norway this year? One of those, yeah. yeah. You know, they've come and visit the lovely lakes and the fjords. And then he gets sacked but then he probably somehow sneaks back in and mm. continues to write on the credits. References to different animals. There's like a moose here and a, and a moose there. Llamas. Well, well, llamas come later. Oh, it's complicated. But yeah, the I, actually, Anthony, I was watching the film last night and was, I was like, I'll watch the film for a bit and I'll write some notes. And I stopped. I must have spent about half an hour just trying to write notes about the opening titles. It's crazy. But he, he has these O's that have a slash through them and two dots on, on just random words. And then some of the letters are capitalised for no reason at all. And um, <laughs> another thing, uh, this is from the commentary. I give a lot of credit to the guys for giving all these secrets away. But like Woody Allen, the, what the Pythons like to do was take something like Bergman, Ingmar Bergman or Fellini and subvert it a bit and not make fun of it, but make it accessible in a funny way or um, a bit sillier than the real one. So I think, again, it was a budget. They said something about they could only afford black and white captions. So they had the idea, we've got to add something to this. You know, we've got to make it interesting because they're packing this whole film with value, you know? There's no wasted frame or no frame that has nothing on it, you know? Yeah. 
you don't notice it at first. You just suddenly realise, oh, there are some subtitles. What is that? What is that? Norwegian? Swedish? And then you realise, oh, the, okay, there are jokes in the subtitles. And then there are jokes in the credits. And then yeah. there's a like a card that says the person responsible for the subtitles has been sacked. And then <laughs> the subtitles get more and more ridiculous. And then, yeah, it's a different company get brought in to do the job. But then yeah. they're all about llamas and it's all references to South American fiestas and stuff. Yeah. So very weird. Very yeah. And then weird. we get the opening shot, which is like this misty, smoky hilltop. And it says England 932 AD. And on the top of the hill, you start to hear a horse approaching. They didn't intend to do this, apparently. They couldn't afford horses and teaching people to ride horses and all that. So they get the coconuts trick. Again, this is Michael Palin. So Michael Palin is kind of emerging as a slightly unsung hero of this film. They filmed that on Hampstead Heath. And of course, someone from the castle. They go to various castles. We should probably say that, for those who don't know, the quest for the grail. The Holy Grail is, is the cup that Jesus was drinking from at the Last Supper, I think. But obviously, yeah, yeah. it's all fairly pointless. And talking about classic films, essentially, he is kind of doing what happens in The Seven Samurai, the Kurosawa film, and then, of course, The Magnificent Seven. He's recruiting people. So they've got an eye on these classic films. Again, they're subverting it. Someone from the tower, I think this is Michael Palin's voice, calls him out with the coconuts. Now, you're using coconuts. You've got two arms of coconuts. <laughs> it's like, who goes there? And he goes, it is I, Arthur, King of the Britons. And he goes, pull the other one or something. He, he doesn't believe him. He said, you're using coconuts. This is the scene that I got stuck on last night while I was writing notes. I was just like, what, what is going on here? The guy in the tower is sceptical that Arthur is the king because he's using coconuts. But this is like breaking the fourth wall in a very weird way. He's not turning to the camera going, look, terrible uh, special effects on this film, eh? You know, instead it's more like arguing with the king, suggesting you're not the king of the Britons because you don't even have a horse. You know, England's a temperate zone, coconut's tropical. Yeah. Where'd you get them anyway? And yeah. then they start arguing about the basic premise of the film. <laughs> yes. It is I, Arthur, son of Uther Pendragon from the castle of Camelot, king of the Britons, defeater of the Saxons, sovereign of all England. Pull the other one. I am, and this is my trusty servant Patsy. We have ridden the length and breadth of the land in search of knights who will join me in my court at Camelot. I must speak with your lord and master. What, ridden on a horse? Yes. You're using coconuts. What? You've got two empty halves of coconut and you're banging them together. So? We have ridden since the snows of winter covered this land. Through the kingdom of Mercia, through... Where'd you get the coconuts? We found them. Found them? In Mercia, the coconut's tropical. What do you mean? Well, this is a temperate zone. The swallow may fly south with the sun, or the house martin or the plover may seek warmer climes in winter. Yet these are not strangers to our land. Are you suggesting coconuts migrate? Not at all. They could be carried. What? A swallow carrying a coconut? It could grip it by the husk. It's not a question of where he grips it. It's a simple question of weight ratios. A five-ounce bird could not carry a one-pound coconut. Well, it doesn't matter. Will you go and tell your master that Arthur from the court of Camelot is here? Listen, in order to maintain airspeed velocity, 
A swallow needs to beat its wings 43 times every second, right? Please! It could be carried by an African swallow. Oh, yeah, an African swallow may be, but not a European swallow, that's my point. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. Will you ask your master if he wants to join my court at Camelot? But then, of course, uh, African swallows are non-migratory. Oh, yeah. So they couldn't bring a coconut back anyway. Wait a minute. Supposing two swallows carried it together? No, they just have it on a line. Well, simple. They just use a strand of creeper. Anything they, where they show the limitations of their film, or the serious story, let's call it. They're just commenting on, on how fake film is, basically. They used the phrase something like safety and silliness. If you're being silly, then if something looks cheap or fake, just make that the joke, you know? You haven't yeah. got enough money to get horses, make a joke of that. It's very resourceful. The best comedy is often very resourceful when there aren't many resources around. Like stand-up, you know, that's one of the reasons why stand-up is so good, because literally the comedian's got nothing. They don't have anything else to rely on, nothing to hide behind, no special mm. effects. Mm. They only have to rely on what they've got there in front of them, and that somehow makes it funnier. There's some sort of magic in that. When you've got no special effects, and you can use that to your advantage to mm. create a funny contrast. Yeah, and using good. limitations, basically, yeah. And, I mean, I was wondering this, what would it have been like if they'd had horses? If they'd had a bigger budget, would the film have been different? Would it have been funnier, less funny? They would have had to have had some gags that involved the horses, I suppose. Because the way this film is set up, there's nothing in the film that isn't part of a gag. So if you just had horses being normal, (laughs) I feel like they would have had to have worked a gag in there. I can't think of anything in this film that's not part of a joke. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, Everything you see is is gag-worthy, so I don't know, yeah. It's just hard to imagine, isn't it? Because we know it without it. I mean, what could they have done? Obviously, we're we're sort of speculating what they would have done if they'd had horses. They might have come up with something great. You know, like Life of Brian, I think, had a bigger budget. The location was a lot more realistic. But um, if he'd arrived on a horse, it's not funny. That opening gag is one of the best gags in the film. Again, thank goodness they didn't have a high budget because somehow they managed to, somehow it made it funnier, I I think. Forgive the Beatles parallel, but uh, (laughs) the Beatles actually tried to record in America in the 60s where they would have had 8-track or 16-track recording, but instead they stuck, maybe they had to, but they tended to stick with EMI, which had uh, fairly primitive equipment, but then it forced them to be uh, innovative. So tape loops were literally bits of tape with loops on them yeah yeah you know? so there's yeah. something to be said for that so i don't forget to say this later there's actually one scene where they dismount from the horses <laughs> that's right yeah <laughs> lift their legs over the in, yeah, in, in midair yeah they kind of do this little motion to dismount oh dear yeah. very good <laughs> so then we get this discussion of swallows and I, I think we're talking about juxtaposition i think the funny thing is the idea of peasants poor people who you imagine are uneducated who've got a really good command of the English language and loads of general knowledge. That's what's funny, isn't it? Because it just goes on and on and Arthur just gives up, doesn't he? And there's a certain momentum to his quest. And he's like, I am Arthur, King of the Britons. You know, do you have a grail? And, you know, there's like a momentum to that and it's totally cut through. So it's like, uh, well, you know, how'd you get get those coconuts? You know, this, this sort of mundane, really annoying, this sort of conversation that people have in fairly boring jobs where they're standing around a lot. 
Yeah, it's this, those characters in brown coats in a kind of hardware shop discussing different types of hardware, isn't it? Well, if you've got a, you know, a three, three pin plug, you're going to need to do a double joint on it. That sort of level of technical conversation. And then there's yeah. Arthur there. Well, Graham, Graham Chapman plays it completely straight. That's what's so brilliant about it. And they say on the commentary, they say Graham was actually a really good actor. You know, he probably could have played a yeah. serious role. Maybe he did. I don't even know. He probably should have done more serious straight acting because, yeah, it's, it was really good. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of straight dramatic acting in one sense. Without everything around him, if you just delivered his lines and had a different context, it could sound serious. He sounds very earnest, you know. It's like the Leslie Nielsen thing from Airplane. Oh, where yeah, he's doing yeah. it completely seriously, completely straight-faced, while very ridiculous things are happening all around him. Mm. And, yeah, there's some formula. I don't know what it is. There'll be some formula, which is like serious plus stupid equals funny or something. Or like that spinal tap thing of, like, there's a very fine line between stupid and clever. <laughs> yes. Well, there's something in the English books, actually, <laughs> yeah, funnily enough, about the psychology of humour. And a lot of it is uh, well, it's basic subversion or it's... You, you set up a gag and then give it a surprise. So in Python, in the TV series, you'd have like an authority figure delivering some great military speech or something. And then the, the camera would go past and you find he's got no trousers on, just something stupid like that. Yeah. So it, yeah. it's sort of looking behind the veil. They love to look behind the veil of authority figures and show them to be buffoons. That was one thing. So yes. yeah, juxtaposition, subversion. I think that's the key really. I don't think we're going to be able to go through everything. <laughs> we can't go through the entire film. There's just far Let's too much to talk honest. about. Well, I'll bring up scenes and then we'll have a little uh, comment each. So the bring out okay. your dead scene. The thing I loved about this, not only Palin makes a comment about peasants just sort of eating mud or just, it's the equivalent of someone shuffling papers in an office, just sort of slopping mud <laughs> and just kind of mixing it around. And the other, the other thing... You're moving it from one place to another place. Mud admin, basically. And then there's a guy crawling inside a basket as well for no reason. <laughs> yeah, but the other thing is that you get the beginning of this recurring theme of people who aren't quite dead. <laughs> right, yeah, true. Like, that, bring that out comes your dead, up a lot. You've got the old guy, oh, I'm not really dead. I'm, I'm starting to feel a lot better now. <laughs> and that's repeated about four times. Concord, when he's shot with the arrow, he's like, oh, I, I might be all right. I might pull through. <laughs> I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your ninepence. I'm not dead. There. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. It's against regulations. I don't want to go on the car. Oh, don't be such a baby. I can't take him. I feel fine. Well, do us a favour. I can't. Well, can you hang around a couple of minutes? He won't be long. No, I've got to go to Robinson's. They've lost nine today. Well, when's your next run? Thursday. You think I'll go for a walk? You're not fooling anyone, you know. Look, isn't there something you can do? I feel happy. I feel happy. <laughs> Oh, thanks very much. Touch all. See you on Thursday. Right. <laughs> they did a clever thing of like, because the second time I saw it, I thought, oh, they're repeating the joke from earlier. The way they got round it was just by continually using that joke. So then it becomes, <laughs> rather than uh, uh, repeating yourself, it just becomes a recurring uh, theme. 
I don't know. It might even be some weird comment on how futile life was in those days. I don't know. We don't know if that was true as well. We kind of make presumptions, don't we, about medieval times that everyone was expendable, but we don't really know, actually. I think there was certainly a lot more disease and terrible conditions compared to today. I think it's an idea that people didn't get so upset about death because it was so normal. I'm just not sure that that was the case. Anyway, let's get back to the comedy. So the next bit we get, again, what I loved about this is that Arthur once again encounters some peasants who just sort of beat him into submission with their kind of rhetoric and their talking. And again, he he goes, so we get Dennis. He goes, old man, I'm not old, I'm 37. Well, I can't just call you man. Well, you could have called me Dennis. I didn't know your name was Dennis. Dennis. Yeah. Just to make one point about names as well. Dennis, is it, they obviously must have chosen that and thought, so great. Because uh, this is something that Blackadder, I think, may have taken from Python. Like, I think Baldrick has a hamster called Gerald. And uh, in the fourth Blackadder, Field Marshal Hague's tortoise is called Alan. <laughs> right. Yeah, just the, the, the fact that names do belong in, in certain periods of time. And Dennis is not a name from the medieval period. Absolutely. At, yeah. Not at all. It's like very much a a modern name, although it's old-fashioned for us now. Again, contrast, like putting essentially modern-day characters into a medieval setting. Peasants in those days would have been pretty inarticulate and they wouldn't have been educated. Mm. They wouldn't have known about any sort of other way of life, really. They wouldn't have been able to describe the constitutional system that they were living in and they wouldn't have been able to critique the monarchy in the very articulate way that Dennis can. I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how do you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... Dennis, there's some lovely filth down here. Oh, how'd you do? How'd you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. Well, that's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, realize... please, good people. I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? No one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you, we're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case be, of more... Be major- quiet. I order you to be quiet. So, yeah, it's compl- it's ridiculous and funny to see these serfs who work on the land sort of saying, you know, we live in an autonomous collective and Arthur can't handle it at all. I don't know where their politics are really, the Pythons. I don't know if they're really that radical because they, they all went to Oxford and Cambridge and, you know, to an, some extent they all became sort of establishment people, you know, mm. like working at the BBC or this, that and the other. Maybe Gilliam is the more radical of the lot. I would say, yeah. Well, I mean, my political position is really not political. It's looking from afar and seeing the limitations of various positions. 
Obviously, mm-hmm. you try and construct a worldview, but in Life of Brian, you've got, you know, the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front who hate each other. So yeah. they're making a comment there about the idea of these left-wing, I don't really like left and right tag, I think it's a bit limited, mm-hmm. but you know what I mean, mm-hmm. left-wing groups, yeah. socialist groups, arguing about small differences and things. So they're making a comment about how people can't organise and... People are tribal and they, you know, their political affiliations are based more on sort of tribal loyalty than they are on rational approaches to understanding what's going on and and solutions to those problems and things like that. It's more about which gang you're in, I guess, tribalism. Uh, What else have we got here? Yeah, peasants playing with mud. Arthur leaves. And then, of course, we've got the Black Knight again. Seems it's like this very fearsome creature. John Cleese does some silences. And then, uh, do you want to take this one? <laughs> tell, tell us how the scene devolves or, or evolves. None shall pass, None he shall says, pass. standing there. He just killed a, a, another knight in very dramatic fashion. He threw his sword into the helmet with blood gushing out. Yeah, Pretty good out. special effect. And pulls it out with his foot on the helmet. Yeah. I think Rob Ager in his video mentioned this. He's guarding a very small bridge. Oh, yeah, yeah. They could have just gone over it. Yeah. <laughs> you could just hop over the river. Yeah. You could just walk around, a, you know, a couple of hundred metres and hop over the river. Arthur's like, I shall not fight you. And he's forced to fight him. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, just the most ridiculous fight. And Arthur beats him easily. But every time he, first of all, he chops one of his arms off. Arthur does. And he instantly kneels down to pray. But the Black Knight wants to carry on. And he's yeah. like, you know, don't be ridiculous. Your arm's off. And he's like, it's just a flesh wound. Yeah, just, flesh wound. Tis but a scratch. <laughs> yeah. That's the joke, isn't it, basically? Yeah. And it takes Arthur's, off both arms, both legs uh, in the end. Yeah. And then he's just a torso. And he's like, come on, I'll bite your legs off. Yeah. The other line or, is, or, or, all, right, all right, we'll call it a draw. Yeah, exactly. I love the way Arthur's language does slip a little bit at sometimes. Mm. Well, he says you stupid bastard, doesn't he? <laughs> you stupid yeah. bastard, your arms off. That's it. Graham yeah. Chapman's got it perfect because it's 99% <laughs> earnest Arthur speak. And then every now and again, oh, you're a loony or something. Yeah, he, get, he yeah. loses his patience and his magisterial language slips completely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go forward to the, the scene with Connie Booth. And of course, the first time I saw it, I thought, oh, it's Polly from Faulty Towers. And it's yeah. John Cleese's wife, obviously. So that's what goes on here. Arthur turns up in another village and he sees a scene of, first of all, there's Sir Bedivere. Terry Jones as Sir Bedivere. His outfit's wonderful because he's got this ridiculous um, helmet with a sort of a little grill thing that, that, grill, that yeah. hangs down over his eyes. And he keeps moving it out the way. It's, got, it's on a little hinge and he yeah. moves it out the way, but it doesn't stick. He needs a little hook to hold it in place yeah. because there's no hook to hold it in place. So he, he swings it out the way and it just swings back down, obscuring his vision. So he's constantly standing there holding the thing up. And he's, he's apparently a sort of a scientist or something or a rational thinker because basically the villagers have got this woman and they've decided that she's a witch and they've dressed her up as a witch and they've brought her to Bedivere, who appears to be their leader just because he's like slightly more intelligent than them and he's yeah. dressed in more fancy clothes and he's pontificating about whether or not she's a witch and how they can dis- how they can work out and there's very 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 dodgy logic uh, does a wood sink in water no 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 it floats it floats throw her into the pond <laughs> what also floats in water braid Apples, uh, very small rocks. Cider, a great gravy. Cherries, mud. A churches, churches. Lead, lead. A duck. Mm. Exactly. 
So, logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore... A witch! A witch! We shall use by larger scales. It's like bad science, basically, isn't it? Yeah. It's just an example of really bad science. But also it's a it's a joke on the sheer ridiculousness and cruelty of witch hunts back in the day when presumably in villages, if someone had just decided or if the village had decided that a woman they just didn't like, yeah. they just would decide that she was a witch for whatever reason. And then it would, they would concoct some stupid test, which was completely bogus. I remember from reading it that um, one of the tests would be they basically dunk the witch in, in the water or the, the su- supposed witch. If she sinks, she's not a witch. But if she floats, she is a witch. And then she can be executed yeah, or burned. Burned, burned, yeah. So obviously if the woman f- sinks, she's probably drowned in the river, right? So they're basically, it's just an excuse to lynch a woman in the village, isn't it? That's what those things were about. So this is an example of that. And it's like, well, you know, how do you know that she's a witch? Um, well, she turned me into a newt. You know, yeah. that's the sort of level of logic that they've got going on. Again, really cleverly written. Some really good performances. Eric Idle and John Cleese staring up at Bedivere with very stupid expressions on their faces as they desperately try to think through the logic that they're being presented. Yeah. It's like kids in a classroom, in a science class, and the teacher's trying to help them understand the science. But yeah, the reach a conclusion. Yeah. And how do you know? That, you know, what else floats in water? Um, wood? You know, and then Arthur has the answer. A duck! If she weighs the same as a duck, she's a witch. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like I said, it's a crowd baying for blood, so they're working the logic to the belief or the need to kill her rather yeah. than the other way around. Yeah. And then um, the witch, Connie Booth, breaks the fourth wall as well. So it's a fair cop. So. Meaning, all right, I am guilty. I am a witch. <laughs> so yeah. it turns out she was a witch. Okay. Then we get a little bit of uh, another clever device for moving the plot. They talk about the recruitment of the knights and it, it's in a book and there's Polaroid. <laughs> Polaroids of the night. Sir not appearing in this film is Michael Palin's son. And then just for a final touch, the person turning the pages, a claw appears and uh, sweeps the hand away or something like that. Yeah, that's right. There's a hand turning the pages and then at some point a claw comes and grabs the hand and the the person turning the pages gets eaten by a monster of some kind. There's a few (laughs) things where someone will be doing the animation or will get attacked or something. So they're just piling irony upon irony or layer upon layer of silliness. They're always two steps ahead. Yeah, you never really get a chance to process the last thing that's happened. So you just end up in this kind of giddy state. It's hysterical. It really is. Yeah, multi-layered as well. And then we get, uh, they get to Camelot. Camelot, Camelot, it's only a model. Again, right. totally just, just saying, oh, we didn't have enough money for a decent castle. So let's just tell you, <laughs> let's just tell you that. So if they were trying to say that was a real castle, someone could watch that, some film critic and say, oh, that that castle looked a bit fake. So instead, they're one step ahead. They just tell you it's fake. It's only a model. And then you get the Camelot song. Uh, just give us a favourite lyric. I've got, we're opera mad in Camelot. We sing from the diaphragm a lot. Wonderful. I like the bit about um, impersonate Clark Gable. <laughs> oh, Who, of God. course, existed, you know, 10 centuries later. Clark Gable right. was 
actor from the golden age of Hollywood. This is it. When the Knights of the Round Table, we dance whenever we're able. We do routines in chorus scenes with footwork impeccable, which is quite a nice rhyme, somehow in rhyming impeccable with able. We dine well here in Camelot. We eat ham and jam and spam a lot. Oh, there you go. We're opera mad in Camelot. We sing from the diaphragm a lot. Yes. Very good. And so they say, oh, let's not go to Camelot. It's a silly place. <laughs> and then they just Christ. leave. Oh, yes. dear. Uh, we get God, who is actually taken from a picture of W.G. Grace, who was a famous cricketer oh, with a really? huge beard from the late 19th, sort of early 20th century. And he says, yeah. get on with it at some yeah. point, doesn't he? I love another scene. Do you remember when... Um, People from earlier scenes say, get on with it as well. But what's funny yeah. about that, you get Tim the Enchanter says, get on with it. We haven't even seen him. It's from a He's later from a, scene. Yeah, it's like forward reference to something we haven't even seen yet. Yeah. So I need to make a little jingle out of all of those clips. Yeah. Of people saying, get on with it, and then play it at moments like this in an episode of my podcast. Just to break off for a second, uh, during the commentary, someone had a really good theory. They said, so you've got John Cleese, Eric Idle and Graham Chapman all went to Cambridge. Eric Idle wasn't particularly tall, but Cleese and Chapman were taller and that they were sort of more left brain, precise, logical, verbal. And then you've got Mike Palin and Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam on the other side, more conceptual and more fluid ideas. So I like that. You know, obviously it doesn't work as a perfect three on three split, but can you imagine a bit of tension in the writing session? Maybe creative tension. I understood that there was tension between maybe the polls to an extent were like Cleese and Terry Jones. Right. I think that that's where the main point of tension was between them. I don't really know the nature of it though. I hadn't read the Michael Palin diaries, so I don't really know, but yeah, I'm sure there was tension. And I'm just from looking at interviews and there's a DVD extra with um, life of Brian, where they're all talking about each other and they, yeah. they're quite critical of each other, but it's in quite a friendly way. I think they're probably quite close, but um, you know, again, spinal tap, you know, they're very close, closer than brothers. Cause you know, Brothers always fight. No, that doesn't work, that quote I've just used, does it? <laughs> they were very close, like brothers, because brothers always fight. That's what I wanted to say. Oh, there you go. So they were, yeah, I think just through all the closeness, but they were working, you know, I think they, they had a professional relationship. And mm. so, yeah, there was tension because I think they all had a sense of quality, you know, mm. quality control. And so they would argue against each other. But I think ultimately they probably got on with each other and they were a successful unit. I don't think it was real animosity, I would I say. Think, I think it's one of these things where, it, I think with bands as well, obviously they didn't quite have the thing of, of a band on tour who literally mm. just spend six months with each other on a bus and they're all sort of doing whatever they're doing in the evening and they're all tired and etc. I think they were lucky yeah. they didn't have that. So I think it's just a case where you're just, just not spending too much time with the same people. Yeah. Yeah. I think it must have got a bit fraught during the filming of this film because sure. they were in a pretty crazy location, sort of like quite remote parts of Scotland. It would have been cold and wet as well in some cases. There would have been a lot of waiting around. The two Terrys were learning how to make a film exactly. while making the film and the others would have watched them. I saw like a clip of John Cleese on YouTube in his costume talking yeah. about the two Terrys and their directing style. And he was saying, actually, you know, because it's been quite tough for them, we've had to hold back on our normal criticism. Mm. So we're not being as critical as we normally would be because they're actually learning. It's quite a steep learning curve for them. And he said, actually, we've been enjoying watching them suffer quite a lot. So, 
Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like that typical relationship you get with maybe slightly upper class or upper middle class English men, certainly from that mm. generation. And that was their relationship. They would be sort of competitive. They wouldn't really show much care for each other's feelings. It was mm. a lot of making fun of each other and a lot of sort of casual cruelty. That was just the nature of relationships between people like that in those days. Although later on, I think they became closer as friends in some cases, like Terry Jones and Michael Palin, I think, became very close friends. I can imagine them having a pretty harmonious relationship. They just seem like probably the easiest to get on with of the six anyway. So I can imagine they had good relationship. Cleese was obviously dealing with Graham Chapman's alcoholism for a number of years. That was yeah. another thing. But uh, yeah, there's a good video. Um, I'll put it in the show notes on location. It's a BBC thing. The thing that you were talking about, it's about 18 minutes altogether. And you've got you've got Gilliam sort of very like a kid. He's always like a kid, isn't he? Like, yeah, we're, we're just kind of learning how to how to make a film. You know, he's a very giggly kind of kid. He's very, we're just very, kind of goofing off and having yeah. a great time here. You know? I don't really know yeah. how to make a film, but, you know, I, I'm trying my best. It's that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Terry Jones is very, yeah, it's not easy to make a film. It's a sort of a thankless task, really. It's like <laughs> that kind of thing. They've all got that slightly upper class accent. You know, John Cleese yeah. is sort of almost a bit posh, you know, the way yeah. he sort of speaks in this rather sort of snobbish sort of tone, you know, and two yeah. Terries and doing their best, but, you know, they're, they're struggling and we've all been enjoying watching them, you know, having an awful time. People were a bit posher back then, it seems. Mm. Well, Michael Palin was actually uh, originally from Sheffield, so we'll, we'll get to it in a minute, but uh, mm-hmm. obviously he can do the Northern accent, just it's an authentic Northern accent, basically doing yeah. his father. Yeah. Of course, then he comes across, he's got a very RP kind of accent in real life. and But then he can, yeah. they can all do, they all could all sort of do Cockney. He could do Northern. They could do anything, really, I think. Yeah, they were brilliant. I love the range. I love the performances. Another strength. It's not just the writing and, and the rest of it, but just the performances. Personally, my favourite is Michael Palin, and I just mm. always enjoy watching everything he does in, in those, mm. in every Python thing. And yeah, he does the accents and just the intensity. And uh, yeah, Palin is one of my favourite comedians of all time, definitely. And doesn't seem to have a big ego. John no. Cleese has got a bit of an ego to him, I feel like. And maybe Eric Idle a bit as well. As you can tell, he's, there's a bit of self-promotion in, in him when he sort of tells anecdotes and things. But uh, Palin doesn't seem to have that at all. He just seems to be a genuinely very nice, unassuming person. But then inside him are all these incredibly vibrant performances. and. Yeah. Just the comedy attitude that he has is amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just this incredible creative blend. Again, like a, like a band, really, but uh, yeah. slightly different. Okay. <laughs> okay, we've got to talk about the French taunting. And the thing I hadn't noticed or I'd forgotten about, he, he puts his hands out like they're cat's paws. Just brilliant. I mean, uh, you know, your mother was an hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. And I like, I like it when he says, you silly king. Instead of saying, you silly bastard or something. You silly king. <laughs> oh, here's a question. You live in France. Do you know yeah. much about whether Monty Python's famous? And are French people good at laughing at themselves? Because the stereotype is that they aren't. Be careful here. I don't want to get into trouble. Most of my students happen to be French, in fact, and they're all lovely. I've never found right. any of that kind of negative stereotype. But go on, get yourself into trouble. Come on. I you think know you I, want I've... It. 
I've talked to lots of French people about this and I think that, uh, yeah, obviously French people will laugh at themselves, but not to the same extent that we do in the UK. Mm. And I think that uh, it's more common in France to laugh at other people. Yeah, I've got to be careful, I guess, with my words and I don't, I'm no expert, but there's a bit of sort of objectification in bawdy level French comedy or, mm. or humour that normally it's someone else is the victim of the joke. Whereas in British comedy, often we are, we're the victim of our own jokes. And, you know, you get yeah. like these sitcom characters like Alan Partridge, who are basically self-defeating characters. Whereas often in French comedy, it's just like enjoying watching people getting angry with other people, yeah. stuff like that. There's a lot of ridiculous and grotesque characters in French comedies, but mm. in French humour, in terms of our social interactions, I feel like Brits are more ready and willing to be the butt of their own jokes and to sort of be self-effacing and self-deprecating. Well, my theory yeah. is that it's just because we're the fallen empire. So our humour reflects that thing that we used to kind of rule the world and now we don't, you know. But um, they're doing exactly what you said, in fact. The English lose and the French win. Who is it? It is King Arthur. And these are my knights of the round table. Whose castle is this? This is the castle of my master, Guido Luamba. Go and tell your master that we have been charged by God with a sacred quest. If he will give us food and shelter for the night, he can join us in our quest for the Holy Grail. Well, I'll ask him, but I don't think he'll be very keen. Uh, he's already got one, you see. What? Are you sure he's got one? Oh, yes, it's very nice. Uh, I told him we already got one. <laughs> well, um, can we come up and have a look? Of course not. You are English types. Well, what are you then? I'm French. Why do you think I have this outrageous accent, you silly king? What are you doing in England? Mind your own business. If you will not show us the grail, we shall take your castle by force. You don't frighten us, English pig dogs. Go and boil your bottom, sons of a silly person. I'll blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King. You and all your silly English niggas. What a strange person. Now look here, my good man. I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trough whopper. Is there someone else up there we can talk to? No, now go away or I shall taunt you a second time. Again, watching the film with subtitles really enhanced it a lot. And this would be great, of course, for our students who are not native speakers because... It's mind-boggling, some of the language. Yeah. It's just quite astonishing. Yeah. But then, of course, on the other side, you get Fetche la Vache, which is a wonderful piece of French. <laughs> it's sort of like frang franglais or, yeah, yeah, like fetch the cow, but Fetche la Vache. Fetche la Vache. Fetche la Vache. Yeah. I read that um, John Cleese came up with that after reading about genuine French taunters in um, mm. medieval conflicts. Armies would have taunters that was yes. their job to taunt the opposing soldiers and insult mm. them and also the bit where they chuck livestock yeah. throw chickens and cows and sheep and stuff over the battlements of the castle as a weapon that's based on the idea that actually a lot of armies would throw crazy stuff at each other it would often be a lot more horrific than a chicken severed heads and oh, body yeah. parts 
not just boiling oil, which is a bit of a myth, because if you had oil, you wouldn't be throwing it over the edge of the castle. You'd be Mm. keeping it and using it. But Mm. um, any disgusting or horrible thing would have been thrown over the battlements as a weapon. But in the film, it's chicken and livestock used very effectively against uh, Arthur and his his minstrels. It's Robin's minstrels, isn't it, that get crushed by a, a cow. Yeah, there's a dead sheep later or something. And uh, <laughs> the other bit I love is, uh, is it this scene where Arthur shouts charge and they just charge this wall? <laughs> yeah. Just this wall that is in front of them, this huge castle. What's the point of yeah. that? And, and then, then when the course, chickens and stuff become raining down, they, of course, they all go, run away, Yeah, run away. the famous line, yeah. Bravely uh, shouting, run away. Yeah. <laughs> the Trojan rabbit made of wood. We see another rabbit later. Galahad's page gets crushed. Can't remember if it's the rabbit or the cow. One of those. Oh, then uh, I kind of picked up on this, but Rob pointed this out. While they're creating the rabbit, you can hear these mechanical tools, which are obviously from the present day. Yeah. Yeah, Drills and saws and things like that. Yeah, drills and saws. And then, of course, we get one of the most famous bits. Suddenly we're in a documentary. We've got the historian talking about it. But did you notice finally that the knight that kills him is actually on horseback? Right, yeah. The only the only moment there's an actual horse in the in the film is when the historian gets killed. Yeah, yeah. And again, yeah. brilliantly, we get references to the historian. They just randomly cut to the police interviewing his wife and stuff later on. Yeah, brilliant. And then we get another great. Oh, you talk about Eric Idle. This is not so much self promotion, but he pointed out in the commentary that the bravely bold Sir Robin song, which I actually remember you quoted when you were on my. What were we doing? No, I was on your podcast talking about John Lennon, yeah. Yeah. He quoted that. Uh, Eric Idle actually wrote that. I thought Neil Innes wrote it. Oh, I thought that was Neil Innes too. So but, what did Neil Innes do? Because he didn't really write the Camelot song and um, he didn't write the Bravely Bold Sir Robin song. So I wonder what he did. He actually wrote a whole score that they didn't use, unfortunately. He's obviously acting briefly in the film. He's got a couple of parts. He's one of the monks who were sort yeah. of flagellating of... Whacking um, himself in the head with a piece of wood. That's it. That's the one. He might have done the score. I'm honestly not sure. But uh, the way he delivers that song is fantastic. I can't go on. All I've got is his eyes gouged out and his elbows broken. And then as soon as he says his penis, he goes, all right, that's enough, lads. <laughs> <laughs> and then afterwards, brave Sir Robin ran away. When danger reared its ugly head, he bravely turned his tail and fled. That's I it. didn't. I didn't. Yeah. But then, then brilliantly, and about 20 minutes after that, the next time you see Sir Robin, he's still singing that song. So you get the idea that he's been singing it for hours or days. Yeah. yeah. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to use uh, my host privilege. I'm going to go past the three-headed knight and the knights yeah. say knee, because I didn't think it was very funny. But uh, you can comment if you want. The knights that say knee comment. and the three-headed knight. Go three-headed knight's all right. It's maybe the weakest sketch in the film, I mm. would say. The knights that say knee, I think it's the sort of thing that some people love it, some people don't. I like it because of um, Michael Palin's ridiculous voice. You know, he's doing that maniacal voice that he does. It's a bit like the Spanish Inquisition voice, but even, yes. hi- even at a higher pitch, you know. We demand a shrubbery. Ding! I do like the weirdness of it that they end up in a spooky forest and then suddenly they're so, you know they come across these very weird it's like the weirdest moment in the film maybe yeah when you think about it like who are these people and what, what's this magic word knee 
And the one mm. thing I do like is when they've changed their name, they used to be the Knights Who Say Ni, and now they're the Knights mm. Who Say Ekikeki Fatang Ziwop or, or Boing. And there's one in the background still saying Ni. And Arthur says the Knights who until recently said Ni. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the artist yeah, formerly yeah. known as Prince, the Knights who till recently said Ni. Oh dear, what on earth are those Knights? So weird. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then we get Galahad. Again, it's not bad. Again, I don't think... I think the film dips a bit in the middle and then picks up again. But obviously, Galahad is... Um, is it Anthrax? Chased. Castle Anthrax. Mm. Castle Anthrax, yeah. Yeah, of course, Anthrax hadn't been invented then either. Uh, playing on the sort of um, earnest knight who's only thinking about the quest and is not even interested in sex or stuff. And obviously, he changes his mind when he moves into that room. It's not bad. <laughs> I think my favourite bit is actually when Carol Cleveland breaks the fourth wall and then we get all this get on with it stuff and uh, she says oh, I wonder if they'll cut my scene which again is brilliant you know it's it, it's almost like giving you a window into the editing process yeah they'll probably yeah. cut this bit yeah it's a pretty weird moment mm, um, the repressed Englishman and the earnest knight definitely is in yeah. there somewhere that's a paling thing isn't it because he did a film called The Missionary which oh, is yeah. kind of like the same thing like this pious religious person who deals with a sexual situations what have we got next swamp castle is the next bit one of my favorites definitely yeah michael palin does it does a flawless northern voice as we said terry jones is this effeminate prince doesn't want his father planning his life his father wants him to marry into a rich family one day lad all this will be yours what the curtains no not the curtains lad. <laughs> listen alice herbert sorry herbert it's brilliant <laughs> all of that scene is amazing we get all the stuff with the guards and uh Graham Chapman, all he does is hiccup. Eric Idle is basically doing, um, in the bit where the prince wants to write the note and send the arrow, Eric Idle's doing Stan Laurel. That nice sort of really pleasant smile. Kind of idiotic. Yeah, a bit idiotic, but kind of nice. (laughs) There we get all the stuff. Make sure he doesn't leave until I come and get him. Yeah, Yeah. until you come and get him. We, we, won't, we won't leave until you come back or anyone else. Yeah, uh, th- those lines of dialogue are permanently stuck in my head. Right. And they, right. they often will just arrive. The whole scene will arrive from start to finish. Sleepless nights, if I'm lying in bed and I can't sleep, I've just got, stay here and make sure the prince doesn't leave. All, all of it will go through my head. I can't bring it back now when I need to. When I'm trying to go to sleep, though, the entire scene will play on repeat in my head. <laughs> and I'll enjoy it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. then when they finally get it, they start going out of the room with him as well. He's like, where are you going? We're coming with you. No, I want you to stay here and make sure he doesn't leave. Yeah. <laughs> so the prince um, fires this arrow with this note. Lancelot's there with uh, Concord. There's another reference to the 20th century. The arrow goes into Concord. Concord's not quite dead. I think I'll pull through. <laughs> and Lancelot's going, sweet Concord, you haven't died in vain. Uh, I haven't actually died yet. Uh, etc. <laughs> Lancelot obviously thinks it's a damsel in distress, goes up to the castle. Another bit where he's miles away, you see him running, and then suddenly he's right at the front door. <laughs> yeah, that like that you see the same shot repeated and this drum yeah. roll. And the, the guards are like taking their time, eat one of them's eating an apple. And then before they know it, suddenly he's a he's upon them and he like kills them both and slaughters everyone in the castle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh this bit I mean, just everything. It's just the way he goes in. It's obviously like an Errol Flynn style thing. He's just going around slaughtering everyone. 
I think he kicks the bride in the stomach or something. It's pretty, yeah, yeah. That's a bit dark. But uh, he's sort of apologising to the king, the northern king. He said, oh, I'm terribly sorry. I get carried away sometimes. And then he start, takes him around the castle as if he's showing him like a new house. He goes, oh, yeah, we did this with the this room and we did this one up recently, a few months ago. And then they start complaining that he's killed some of the guests and the king says, oh, let's not bicker about who killed who. <laughs> I love the way the king has basically decided this knight is, this is exactly the sort of person I was looking for. I'd like him to be my son, please. Yes. And so he basically arranges for him to inherit the castle. And meanwhile, the son has come back from the dead and is about to sing a song. And it, he keeps trying yeah. to go into song. And it's like it, every now and then it breaks into a musical number That's or it. the beginning of a musical number. And then the king, stop that, stop that. No one's going into song while I'm here. You That's know, it. Yeah. And then it ends with, and then uh, Lancelot swings on the rope and then just gets stuck. He doesn't make it to the other side. He's just sort of suspended. <laughs> Can someone give me a hand? <laughs> One of the things that you picked up on earlier, and you see this in Life of Brian with the Sermon on the Mount, is people using modern language and modern voices. So mm-hmm. Lancelot's like, I will, I will save you. And he's like, Can you give me a hand? So in the Sermon <laughs> of the Mount and Life of Brian, it's like, Oh, shut up, big nose. And someone shout, yeah. get on with it, to Jesus, who's doing the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> but I think they made Blessed a... are the meek. Get Blessed. on with it. Yeah. Yeah, but they say um, the Pythons said something. This is more to do with life of Brian, but I think it's salient here as well, that uh, we always just assume that people in those days all talked in either a very lofty way or like as a village idiot. So they're mm. trying to say that people may well have just talked in normal voices and said, oh, God, the weather's a bit... They may have had different words, but they're saying something along the lines of, oh, the weather's crap, it's bloody raining again, you know? Yeah, or I can't, you know, I can't quite cut these crops because, you know, when you cut into the uh, stem of the crop, you know, it shards off in like these bunches. You know, like they would have had sophisticated language to talk about the things that were immediately in front of them, you know? They wouldn't have been able to talk about social systems, but they might have been able to talk about the way that you farm the earth. You know, so yeah. they could have been sophisticated and articulate, but just in a certain way. Yeah, I, yeah, but I, I think, guess. But I feel like people, but like I said, they probably just talk about normal stuff in normal voices a lot of the time. I'd be fascinated to know that if you could just uh, go back to an average day in 9.32. What did people talk about, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got a terrible chafing down the side of my leg. <laughs> you know what you want? Some of that dock leaf juice that what's her name makes up the road. Yeah, there you go. You've just written a sketch. Just written a <laughs> Python sketch. <laughs> oh dear. Then we get an old crone beating a cat against the wall. Okay, let's not think about that too much. Not um, a real cat. Listen, not a real. Yeah, no cats were harmed. I'll go past the shrubbery if you don't mind. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> we get Tim the Enchanter, and we finally get a Scottish accent because they did film this in Scotland, didn't they? Uh, yeah. What about Tim yeah. the Enchanter? He's fantastic. He's very impressive character, isn't he? Yeah, John Cleese. The Grail. He really gets his mouth around that Scottish accent, doesn't he? Cleese. Yeah. He really goes for it. There's like a really impressive performance with the horns on his head and everything. Wow. And he's he's really blowing things up with abandon. Maybe just to emphasise his sentences, he just like turns around and blows up a mountaintop 
Well, he also transports himself via an explosion. He creates an explosion that causes him to move from one spot to another. It's quite funny. (laughs) When they first discover him, he's he's on the top of a mountain or something and he's like firing explosions everywhere. He just seems to be a bit annoyed. He just woke up on the wrong side of the bed in a bad mood and he's just (laughs) blowing things up for no reason. And then, yeah, he explodes and he appears in front of them. And in the middle of a sentence, just to make sure they haven't, uh, their attention isn't drifting, he sort of blows a few things, a few other things up just to hold their attention, it seems. If you look closely, he's, he's got the horns, but he's also got some sort of bathing cap on as well. Yeah, next time you watch it, he's got horns and framing a bathing cap. So he directs them to the cave. We get the deadly rabbit. Quite gruesome. Arthur starts doing these things where he gets confused between three and five. Just going, one, two, five, no, three. (laughs) Again, it's sort of, uh, it's a surprise because it's, Arthur just seems really intelligent and earnest and you'd never think for a second he'd do something like that. I think it's a reference to another film. The IMDB seemed to say that that was a reference to something else. I can't actually uh, get that information right now, but apparently it's a reference to some other thing, like some film from 1966 where one of the characters got confused between the number three and five. I think it's a reference to that. Oh, Might wow. be wrong. I mean, I, did, you know, I didn't actually say what the fact was there, but that <laughs> non-fact that I just said, I might be wrong about that. <laughs> oh dear. Then we get Brother Maynard and the Holy Hand Grenade and that Wonderful. brilliant speech about the number three. And uh, again, brilliantly yeah. written. How does it, um, how does it work? I know not, my liege. Consult the Book of Armaments. Armaments, chapter 2, verses 9 to 21. And Saint Attila raised the hand grenade up on high, saying, O Lord, bless this thy hand grenade, that with it thou mayst blow thine enemies to tiny bits in thy mercy. And the Lord did grin, and the people did feast upon the lambs and sloths, and carp, and anchovies, and orangutans, and breakfast cereals, and fruit bats, and large... Skip a bit, brother. And the Lord spake, saying, First shalt thou take out the holy pin, then shalt thou count to three. No more, no less. Three shall be the number thou shalt count, and the number of the counting shall be three. Four shalt thou not count, neither count thou two, excepting that thou then proceed to three. Five is right out. Once the number three, being the third number, be reached, then lobbest thou thy holy hand grenade of Antioch towards thy foe, who, being naughty in my sight, shall snuff it. Amen. Amen. Right. One, two, five. Three, sir. Three. That seems like it's probably Palin, that kind of yeah. wordy thing. And Palin's actually emerging as perhaps, I th- I'd say other than Graham Chapman as Arthur, who I think is just pitch perfect. Yeah, Palin is really good in this, isn't he? It's the best Python, I think. Favourite Python, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would say so, yeah. I think Terry Jones is the best woman 
obviously Brian's mother, yeah. you know, he's not the Messiah and all that. And Dennis's yeah. wife, he's got that great voice. Oh, Dennis, stop talking about politics. <laughs> king of the Britons. Who are the Britons? We are all Britons and I am your king. I didn't vote for you. <laughs> oh, dear. And then we get um, <laughs> Castle. Arrgh! Um, <laughs> this stupid scene where there's some information written on the wall in yeah. a cave and then the the writing goes ah, and they're, they're speculating about maybe whether the guy got killed while he was writing it but yeah you wouldn't write ah, you'd obviously scream it if you'd been killed but you wouldn't write it <laughs> yeah if you were killed while you were writing i love that well, that's another running gag i mean the animator dies Terry Gilliam, you see Terry Gilliam dying of a fatal heart attack. And yeah, just layers upon layers. That's how they escape the monster of Kair Banog, isn't it? That the animator dies. The animation just stops. Fantastic. (laughs) Nearing the end, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, The Bridge of Death. So the bridge keeper is the old man from scene 24. (laughs) Even get like, (laughs) oh, that's the man from scene 24. And then at one point, Michael Palin, as the narrator, says, um, oh, next we come to a great scene with some smashing acting or something like that. (laughs) Uh, Various times, I can't remember exactly, but various times we cut, as we said earlier, to that historian who was killed by the knight on the horse. We cut to the police interviewing his wife and things like that. And they just do it every, I don't know, 10 minutes or something. So I feel like after a slight dip in the middle, I think the film gets moving, in my opinion, anyway. So I'll just I'll just describe the bridge of death if you don't mind. So you've got this old man, you've got to answer three questions. Lancelot answers them. Robin doesn't know the capital of Assyria and sort of gets hurled into this gorge yeah. beneath the bridge. <laughs> Look, looks quite nasty. Galahad is Michael Palin, gets his favourite colour wrong. Blue! No, yellow! And then, of course, just genius. You ask Arthur, what's the airspeed velocity of an, of an unladen swallow? And Arthur says very earnestly, well, an African or European? And then the, the <laughs> bridge keeper says, I don't know that. And he gets held into the gorge. <laughs> yeah. Just fantastic. I love the bridge keeper. I think that uh, Gilliam's characters are really great. I, lo- I mean, like, yes. he does crazy really well. You know, he's got this really intense stare with those misty eyes. In fact, he's on another level compared to the others in that sense. The character he plays in uh, Life of Brian what is it like a prison keeper or something with a hunchback you know there's that scene where there's eric idle who's got a stutter and then there's gilliam's kind of little hunchback character and he's a very convincing grotesque character actor in a way uh, often with no lines and yeah so that the bridge keeper yes is a very very convincing little monstrous gilliam creation grotesque isn't it yeah but, uh, yeah, I mean, what a, what a mix we were saying earlier about the mix of the Pythons. Gilliam is a whole different crazy to Graham Chapman's crazy. Because I yeah. think they all agreed Graham Chapman was the most out there of the six of them in one sense. He mm-hmm. was the one that you could never... John Cleese said a, said a thing, I liked Graham, but you could never reach him. Yeah. He couldn't imagine being a close friend. I think yeah. it was partly to do with homosexuality, because, of course, that wasn't legalised until 1967, the year that Brian Epstein died. So yeah, obviously, yeah. you know, there was a necessity to keep that quiet for legal reasons, as wrong as that was. Uh, but I think Gilliam was a different type of crazy, you know? Someone you could, probably could have a good time and a beer with, but I think his was a creative crazy. You see it in his films, those wonderful films. Absolutely. Just like, as I was trying to say before, this sense of depth and space in his work. Yes. And he just seems to inhabit this really tangible 
atmospheric world. Like all his films have got it. It's dreamlike or something. I don't know how to explain it, but he's like he's tapped into some other dimension or something like that. Yeah, he's got some visual sense. It's probably not even as surreal as what's in his head, I imagine, but he gets as close as he could within the constraints of a budget. (laughs) Okay, we're on the home stretch now. I love this as well. They get through the bridge of death and he's like, Lancelot. And then we suddenly cut to Lancelot being frisked by the police. (laughs) Yeah, the the police have got him. In the modern day, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) I think that's pretty much it really, isn't it? Well, they get to that final castle and they try and oh, yeah. try and get in and they get all the poop hauled over them and then I yes. feel a bit sad. You do. Basically. But there's the other bit where um, they get here, they get this lovely ethereal music and you get some pretty, there's some amazing landscapes in this film, I must say. That's oh, the thing, the, it's, as a film itself, it's, it's quite impressive. There's the um, boat ride across the lock. They're on this amazing boat with a dragon's head on it. Dragon's yeah. head. Yeah, no, but but then after they've been after they've been taunted and they leave, mm. they just walk across the river. So why didn't they just walk in the first? <laughs> Suddenly it's really shallow, and then we get a sort of uh, Agincourt style speech. So they decide to charge, and then of course. Um, as one of the Pythons mentioned, in every great epic, suddenly there's an army available of like thousands of people who are in reality were students from Stirling University. So again, right. they were just taking locals. They get all ready. You actually see them carving the weapons as well before oh, they really? charge. Um, <laughs> they start charging and then, of course, the police turn up and uh, you've got the historian's wife going, yep, yeah, it was that one, pointing out knights that had killed her husband. <laughs> and one of the police actually puts his hand in front of the camera, like, again, breaking the fourth wall, revealing that the camera crew are sort of part of this gang of loonies who are rampaging through the countryside for whatever reason. That's it. (laughs) And and that's the thing you find at protests, isn't it? You you find that when people are protesting, they're often videoing it, and then you'll find someone, see them put their hand over the the lens. Yeah, that thing goes over the lens. Stop filming. Stop filming now. If I can just say this very quickly, I was saying before Mm. about how I was wondering if a happier ending, or not necessarily a happy ending, but a more fantastical ending, might have been a more of a Gilliam ending. If this Mm. was just a Gilliam film, because again, I read that Gilliam said that he was perhaps less wedded to the comedy than the others were. Yes. That Gilliam was more of a storyteller and was less about just going for the laugh and so if Gilliam had been allowed to make this with more control, I wonder if he would have let Arthur get the grail yeah. and then sort of ride off into the sunset or to be or to go off into the heavens or something like that. Because yeah. a lot of Gilliam's films, that does happen with characters. They lose themselves. They escape into madness often or into the light. You know, the real world reveals itself and all its mad glory and, you know, everything's all right. So I wonder if Gilliam, if he'd been left alone to sort of make the film on his own terms, if he would have, we would have had more of a a Gilliam ending. And if that had been, that might have been actually him getting the grail and then the heavens opening and him transcending or something. I don't know. Well, that's what I meant about that kind of ending. But yeah. you said something earlier about Life of Brian. I don't think you said it was straighter somehow, but the second one, of course, that was only Terry Jones directing because I think they'd realised that the two directors was a bit of a, a head fuck for everyone. Yeah, Gilliam it's was a production designer for that film, oh, right, I understand. Right. Yeah, Life of Brian is a bit more straight 
and a bit more pointed in the sense that it's like maybe aiming at religion a bit more obviously. It's got a more obvious target yeah. and it's satire, which is probably why people think it's they value it higher because they feel that there's it's more than just comedy, that there's a serious social message in the film as well. Whereas yeah. Monty Python and the Holy Grail, what's the social message? I don't know. It's just bonkers. Unless you take the Rob Ager reading, which is that it's a satire of of our modern world and the modern day and that the film is set in the modern day. You know, all the things that make King Arthur ridiculous are still yeah. true today. You know, we still have ridiculous farcical ceremonies and all the rest of it. And also witch hunts now happen more on social media than in reality. That was yeah, another thing that was said. That stuff is still going on with people convincing themselves with very poor logic and bad reasoning and bad arguments and bad faith and all that stuff just to publicly shame people on social media and mob mentalities, tribalism. All that stuff is still true. Yeah. Yeah. Fitting the logic to the belief. Yeah. Well, we've made it. <laughs> we've made it. So I don't know what the film means as a whole. I think we've probably covered that. It's just absurd and surreal and lots of fun and very subversive. Mm. Whether they intended to bring down the entire medium of cinema or they mm. just wanted to make us all laugh or some combination of the two, I don't know. But uh, certainly a whole lot of fun. Yeah, it's all those things, I think. There's definitely a bit of social commentary in there. But just to compare it to Brian, Life of Brian again, I think Life of Brian's probably objectively maybe a better film you know, whatever, yeah. objectively. You know, if you took a load of film critics and said, oh, the pacing and everything. But like I say, this has got something very, very unique about it. Because yeah. I don't think Life of Brian, do they even break the fourth wall? Maybe they don't. I mean, there's the alien sequence, you know, when oh. he falls from the tower and he gets caught by an alien. And oh, <laughs> goes all the way around through space. There's a Star Wars, like, space chase, you know, and, and Brian doesn't know what the hell's going on. And then oh, they God, deposit him back that. on the ground. So he doesn't fall from the tower and to his death. And then uh, he goes on a little space adventure for about 30 seconds. And then he lands on the floor again. And a guy sitting on the floor goes, you lucky bastard. Oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So there's plenty of surrealism. But I think this takes subversion through like two, three, four levels, you know? Right. Holy Grail. They Does break that. the fifth wall is what yeah. you're saying. <laughs> and the sixth <laughs> and the seventh. <laughs> I think you're right. I think Life of Brian must be objectively a better film, but I do like the escapism of Holy Grail a lot. Me too. Yeah. And I mean, if anyone, um, again, I'm going to presume people before they listen to this have seen the film. If you happen to have the DVD or you get a chance, listen to some of the commentaries. And also it might be worth, especially that's a little message for our English students as well, in case they're listening mm. to this. And it's worth looking at the subtitles because the script is just stunning. Some of the language is just amazing. It's that thing I said right at the beginning of intelligent people writing silly dialogue. You know, it's a very interesting. Absolutely. All right. Any final thoughts? Or do you think we've uh, done it some no, justice? I, th I think we've done it really. I just want to say, I hope that, uh, I hope I managed to express myself. I think I warmed up after about an hour and 20 minutes. Ah, right. Yes. <laughs> I can't wait but, to get to the editing suite and uh, sort this out. Yeah. Yeah. You could fix it in the edit, but thanks yeah. for inviting me on Anthony. Uh, it was a pleasure to have an excuse to talk about this film and to watch clips from it and read mm. about it again. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks Fantastic. so much. 
Um, we did do some podcasts before, didn't we? we did some podcasts about John Lennon. Uh, yeah. A lot of my audience probably have migrated from Glass Onion. Mm-hmm. So we did that. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. And then later on this week, we're going to be talking about meditation. Meditation. <laughs> You've got to say it in the John Lennon voice, you see. I can't do a John Lennon accent. Don't Let's not get started on accents now. I mean, I can't no, either. I, it's just a... No, no, you, you do it quite Ricks. well. Medit- meditation. <laughs> I can only do Paul. Meditation, you know. Yeah. Like you know, Paul, Paul would talk about it in slightly embarrassed terms. Like, you know, meditation is just, you know, you just sit there and just sort of think for a while. It's actually quite good. Just <laughs> as if he expects everyone to think it's not. Oh, I see, yeah, slightly more embarrassed. So, you know, it's pretty good, you know, just sort of, like, he talks it down a bit. He just sort of, you know, just, like, have a bit of a mantra and, you know. John's more sort of earnest, a, I think. John, John really would be a lot more it. intense and serious about it. Yes, yeah. and George as well. George, yeah. Anyway, look, let's not start another topic. Hey, let me just end this by saying that that was an amazing time. I was born in 75, but I really feel, as the cliche says, you know, should have been in that era, you know? Mm-hmm. 60s and 70s not that there isn't good stuff now but uh, I don't know just the magic about that era it could be to do yeah. with the time it was made who knows yeah there is a certain magic about it that's right and not that many people involved in it it feels like mm. there were it was, it was a fairly small scene which m- makes it even more magical these days mm. it's like there are 10 of those scenes all happening at the same time most of them unknown just happening in little pockets of the internet weird little youtube channels that have got millions of subscribers that we've never seen where people are doing really out there bizarre things but because there are not just many more channels on tv but you've got the the entirety of the internet which is not aware of them but in those days there were what two three maybe four channels later yeah and so you know when something got on tv it became instantly part of the popular consciousness and monty python sort of is an example of that they could have just been obscure they could if it was these days they would have had some youtube channel they would have had millions of followers maybe but the general populace wouldn't have been aware of them in the same way as they were in the in the 60s and 70s yeah it's a different world Absolutely. More anarchic, more innocent, probably, and less PR-driven as now, you know? There were less filters, yeah. I think. Anyway, listen, we've got to get on with the rest of our lives, I think. You know? <laughs> we do. We've been yeah. here for about two days. Nine hours? No, yeah. Only nine hours, yeah. It's been yeah, great. Thank you very much. And uh, maybe in the future we will, do, we will do Life of Brian, and then we can see under close scrutiny, which is better. Sure. Okay. I'd be quite prepared for that eventuality. Ah, very good. As the same right, goes. Stay on the line. I'm going to turn this recording off. And thank you, everybody, for watching slash listening. We're still not sure which. All right. All the thank best. you. Bye-bye. If you'd like to support my work across my three podcasts, which are Film Gold, Glass Onion on John Lennon, and Life and Life Only, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Anthony Rotuno where you can make a one-off donation or take out a monthly or yearly subscription which will give you early access and bonus podcast content thanks again for listening Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Mom. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar, and pronunciation teaching from me, and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.